On January 4th, 1961, the day after the explosion, the front pages of newspapers around the country had screaming headlines about SL-1. Trio killed in atomic plant blast. Three die as violent nuclear blast releases radiation in Idaho. Atom reactor blows up at Idaho Station. The Idaho Falls Post Register reported on the incident, of course. But also, the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, even Canadian papers like the Ottawa Citizen carried the story. I've no doubt that officials at the Atomic Energy Commission, the AEC, shuddered at this turn of events. This was the last thing they needed, an explosion, three dead men, an anxious public, especially as the government had just set aside money in the federal budget to help civilian nuclear energy companies add seven more reactors to the current fleet. They had plans, cities illuminated by an infinite supply of power, energy that was too cheap to meter, a miniature nuclear reactor in every basement, powering every home. Okay, so maybe not that last one, but still, Atomic energy was supposed to be the future, and this kind of incident did nothing to assure the public that it could be done safely. Of course, safety was important. There's no question that the government and the military wanted to know exactly what had transpired on the night of January 3rd, so that they could prevent it from happening again. But first they had to figure out what happened, how did it happen, and who was responsible. Only three people knew for sure, and they were all dead. Painstakingly recreating the situation and figuring out all the details would take months, and that gap provided plenty of time for rumors and gossip to take hold. Was this sabotage? An intentional effort to destroy the reactor? Did this have to do with the men's personal issues? Or was all this rumor and innuendo simply a distraction from the real problems? And ultimately, what information could people trust? I'm Laura Krantz, and this is Wild Thing, Going Nuclear a series about the power of the universe, contained in the tiny little package of the atom. You and I are living in the atomic age. The endless debate over harnessing that power. The mysteries of the universe. And whether we humans are responsible enough to mess with it. Of benefit or of destruction. Of good or of evil. The investigation into SL-1 was difficult, to say the least. Not only had the reactor itself been destroyed, but the whole place was insanely radioactive. We'll hear more about how they dealt with that in a future episode. But suffice it to say, they had to take a lot of extra precautions. Figuring out what kind of explosion had happened became the first goal of the investigation. It being the height of the Cold War, several officials thought there was a very real possibility of sabotage. That was a theory, I think, in that kind of, you know, 1961... Uh, Francis Gary Powers have been shot down like six months before. Like, this is the, the hottest days of the Cold War. That's Todd Tucker, author of Atomic America, and he's referring to the pilot of an American U-2 spy plane shot down over Soviet airspace in May of 1960. Did someone intentionally plant an explosive under Rod 9, which blew it out of the reactor and caused the meltdown? There was always with that story to me kind of an element of wishful, institutional wishful thinking, like, well... The only way this plant could blow up is if there was a saboteur, which to me is like clearly, I mean, I, I'm the first to admit, I don't know exactly what happened in there, but there were a lot of ways that plant could have destroyed itself short of sabotage. Or if it wasn't intentional, had there been some sort of accidental chemical interaction that caused the place to blow? Investigators followed those potential threads for a while before letting them drop. 
By that time, they'd concluded that the explosion had definitely been a nuclear one. Not a bomb, not a chemical whoopsie, but other rumors cropped up in the meantime. Most of those had to do with Jack Burns and Dick Legg's personal issues, which we heard about in the last episode. Had the two men been clowning around at work? Another theory was they were goofing around. When he'd been over to grab the control rod, one of his buddies goosed him, and he jerked up, and that was it. Had they come to blows, their personal dislike of one another boiling over? He and Legg had actually been in a fist fight um, at a bachelor party the May before this. So they had personal animosity in their past. Or, strangest of all, had there been some sort of sordid love triangle? I heard that particular rumor over and over again. Somebody was sleeping with somebody else's wife, and in a grieved party, deliberately jerked that control rod up in a murder-suicide to destroy the reactor and kill everybody. The guy with the rod, when he left for work, his wife said, I won't be here in the morning because she was sleeping with the dude he was working with. So he was like, if I can't have her, you can't have her. And you could probably go into any restaurant or any bar in Idaho Falls and talk for hours about that subject. Um, Was there a love triangle? Was there not? The love triangle story, that Jack Burns was sleeping with Dick Legg's wife, which led to the call on the evening of January 3rd, 1961, in which Jack's wife asked for a divorce, even made its way into official government reports, despite a complete lack of evidence. When you start peeling back the layers, it starts getting murky, like when you actually know the names of the people involved, like, well, who was cheating on who with what wife? Like, certainly neither one of these guys was going to get a Husband of the Year award, but um, it looks like the, the love triangle story kind of seems to fall apart. But the story has persisted for decades. Case in point, here's a headline in one of the world's trashiest tabloid newspapers, the New York Post. Was the world's first fatal nuclear explosion really sparked by a love triangle? This was from October 2021. It's been over 60 years, and this story still persists. I asked Todd Tucker what he thought of the tale and where it might have come from. I think it just it just kind of arose organically. Um, I think that it was probably just, you know, in that kind of hot house of gossip that is any military installation in any small town. You know, I think those those rumors just kind of got spread. Um, I mean, these young married couples on a military base, it's not it's not too hard to find kind of marital strife. Historian Susan Stacy thinks the rumor took root for a different reason. The drama of that possibility persists. But I also believe that it's an easier story to understand than the intimacies of what goes on in the middle of a reactor. What was going on at the reactor that night? And what was in the minds of each of these men prior to the explosion? They were under a lot of pressure to get their job done. They had personal issues to deal with. We don't know what any of them were thinking. The only thing we know is that Burns manually lifted the control rod too far. And there's a good chance that none of them even understood how dangerous the reactor was. An investigator who interviewed other men in the program found that most of them didn't know that pulling out rod number nine could do that level of damage. All of these men assumed they'd been trained properly and told of the risks. They had to trust the army and the contractors in charge of the reactor. And they also had to trust each other. But maybe some of that trust was misplaced. The fact was, trust was paramount to this whole operation. 
For the National Reactor Testing Station to keep going, it needed to have the support and trust of the community. And the people of the community needed to trust that the technology was safe. After SL1, that may have been easier to do when there was a salacious rumor to fall back on. I think that this was a a culture and a town that really didn't want to believe there was anything kind of inherently wrong with any of these reactors. So it's like if you if you believe that these reactors are, are designed perfectly safe and, and the procedures are all good, then what alternatives that leave you? It has to be malfeasance by an operator. These were the kinds of failures that the AEC and everyone in the nuclear industry didn't want people thinking too much about. They had invested a lot in the success of these programs and wouldn't likely be thrilled about anything that might derail them. So while I don't think the Love Triangle story was a deliberate government cover-up, I do think it may have provided a kind of convenient distraction from bigger problems. And let me point out one more detail. Even if Jack Burns had wanted to destroy the reactor, killing himself and everyone else in a peak of heartbroken anger, he shouldn't have actually been able to do it simply by lifting up one rod. The man may have been flawed, yes. The flaws in the reactor design were far worse. But it's easier and tidier to let the man take the blame. Now, to be fair, after those initial newspaper stories came out, the Atomic Energy Commission and the Army could have refused to share more information. They could have claimed national security, rolled out a little move-along, nothing to see here, and people likely wouldn't have put up too much of a fuss. We were still very much in a time period when people trusted the government. Well, I, th I think it was an era where, you know, kind of pre-Vietnam, pre-Watergate, you know, there was enormous respect for science and scientists. And so when this was the official message, people just took it for granted. And as we've heard, the Army nuclear program was actually fairly transparent, which was in keeping with the goals of President Eisenhower's Atoms for Peace program and civilian use of nuclear power. So when journalists interviewed officials, they actually got pretty honest answers. Susan Stacy again. There's no, no point and no effort to hide anything. The only thing that was taken a little more seriously about secrecy was the personal injuries and wounds that each man suffered. We'll hear a bit more about that later, but I would agree that aside from the more gruesome details of the men's deaths and the subsequent autopsies to figure out what had gone wrong, most of the articles I read contained a lot of very candid information. For example... Figuring out how to remove the man who was up on the ceiling without endangering the reactor. They were afraid that debris falling in could somehow bring the reactor to criticality. They didn't know how much water was still in there. They didn't know whether the reactor was in a safe state, whether it was unstable. Newspapers published almost daily articles with updates on what investigators had found, from the state of the reactor to the status of the men's funeral arrangements, to the safety measures that the Atomic Energy Commission was taking nationwide. This was a big item for, well, Idaho newspapers and a lot of other newspapers were covering all this. I didn't find any resistance anywhere for people talking about it. In fact, it was because they wanted people to be ready for the idea of nuclear power that they didn't want any secrets. They wanted all of the safety studies they had done to be public. They decided to generate movies that recreated the accident on film. One film, cleverly titled SL1, The Accident, tried to make the scenes look as authentic as possible. They had the same people, the same firemen who came to the rescue at 901, 
They were in the film re recreating what they had done as they approached the gate, as they went in, and so forth. At one minute after nine, an automatic alarm sounded in fire station number one, fire station number two, and the communication center of the AEC's Idaho operations office. One long and two short strokes indicated the trouble was at SL-1. And those films were made deliberately to educate people about what had happened. The government seems to really love using movies to educate the public about nuclear power, as we heard back in episode three. The films were a combination of both reenacted scenes and illustrated images, which included intricate details of how reactors work. The reactor was a direct cycle, natural recirculation, boiling water system. All narrated by confident government bureaucrats with soothing authoritative voices and scored with oddly cheerful orchestral music. Between the blow-by-blow -blow accounts in the newspapers and the Oscar-worthy films, people seem to be pretty well informed. Once word got out on the base, word got out in the community pretty quick. And uh, it was not a secret. I mean, it was in newspapers all over the country. If it was a cover-up, it was a really <laughs> poorly executed cover-up. But if the Army was being so transparent, if the AEC was answering all the questions asked of them, then why did these other rumors take hold? Honestly? We have ourselves to blame for that, at least in part. Love triangles, murder-suicides, those kinds of stories are more interesting to us. The humdrum idea that some sort of technological mistake was made, and the dry details of what goes on inside a reactor, well, that just isn't as compelling or as easy to understand as Susan Stacy pointed out. It's not as fun to talk about over drinks or read about in the paper. People like drama more than they like truth. And as I mentioned earlier, they also may have needed to believe that the technology was fine. There were a lot of people, especially people in that area, people that were in those circles, that it was comforting to them that this might be a love triangle or comforting to them that this might be the result of some goofball uh, boring around in the control room. That's, that's a more comforting notion than this idea that like, holy the army designed this really crappy reactor and then put three young guys in charge of it. As I said before, the government did not start these rumors, but they may have been quite convenient. They took the focus off the real problems with the reactor and distracted people from questions about the safety of nuclear energy as a whole. By feeding into the public's love for scandal, these crazy stories shifted the blame away from the more likely culprits of the explosion. The poor design, the neglected maintenance issues, the lack of training and supervision, the make-it-work culture. And while individual human error certainly played a role, the overall cause of the explosion was more of a systemic rather than a personal failure. The AEC's final report agreed, essentially saying that while they couldn't know for sure what caused the incident, the reactor was in such bad condition that it shouldn't have been operating at all. You can be sure that if they had found the tiniest bit of evidence for that love triangle or a murder-suicide, they would have shouted it from the rooftops, preferring any explanation other than the one that questioned the safety of their nuclear program. This season of Wild Thing is supported solely by First Light Capital Group. Founded by female entrepreneur Alba Toll, First Light Capital Group is an innovative investment firm that strives to generate outstanding financial returns and change how the industry fosters talent and diversity. First Light has a dual-pronged mission. First, it trades public equities, private equities, and debt using its proprietary data-informed investment process. And second, 
Through a separate seed fund, it seeks to cultivate the next generation of female entrepreneurs by providing women-led businesses in the technology and biotechnology sectors with the capital, infrastructure support, and mentorship needed to take their companies to the next level. To learn more about First Light Capital Group, please visit firstlightcapitalgroup.com. While the government may have been willing to give honest answers to questions raised about the accident, they didn't necessarily want people scrutinizing things too closely, especially since, in our history with all things nuclear, the government hasn't always been transparent. As we heard back in Episode 3, the nuclear program began very much in secrecy. The whole nuclear industry in the United States, whether we're talking about bombs or peaceful uses, you know, it came out of a moment of incredible secrecy, the Manhattan Project. Now, when the memories of World War II, the Good War, were still fairly fresh, fears about nuclear energy, about radiation, about potential problems weren't front and center. We trusted the government to do right by us. But as we got further into the 1960s and 1970s, something began to shift. Part of that was due to events like the Civil Rights Movement, as well as Watergate in Vietnam, which created a growing recognition that the government wasn't always fair and wasn't always being straightforward with the public. People not only took a closer look at current events, but also some of the practices of those early days of the nuclear age, wondering what else the government might not have told them. It wouldn't, for instance, have failed to tell people about the dangers of uranium mining, would it? When I was given the testimonies of Navajo men that went into the mines, they didn't know. They said they didn't know it was hazardous. That's Esther Yazzie Lewis, a member of the Navajo Nation. She also co-wrote the book, The Navajo People and Uranium Mining, which involved interviewing Native American men who had mined uranium for the government beginning in the 1940s. They were down in the mine and they took their lunch down there and they saw that the water was clear and they drank it and coming back up from underground with the yellow cake on them and going back to their families where the wife and the children was exposed. As early as the 1930s, scientists knew that uranium mining and lung cancer were associated, even if they didn't figure out exactly why until a decade later. By 1950, the U.S. Public Health Service was running studies about uranium miners. They expected the workers to develop certain illnesses and wanted to document what happened. I think they knew a lot. They just didn't expose it. I think the need for uranium was more important to make bombs and as weapons. But the miners themselves were never told. I know through the testimonies that I transcribed, they said we were not told. Never at any time were we told that this was dangerous. We just thought it was, it was you know, we're mining and, and we're making our money. And now we find out that, you know, we were used to dig up this uranium. It's interesting, because the scientists who worked on the Manhattan Project, who knew the dangers of radiation, reportedly wanted to do this work anyway to help their country win the war. I wonder if the Navajo miners, given the same information, might have made the same choice. But they weren't given that kind of information. They worked for less than minimum wage in mines that contaminated native lands, so it's no small wonder that the Navajo don't really trust the government. Navajo people were not informed and were not educated on how the government did stuff. Now that we see it, it's a process of genocide to me. 
because it's killing off the people slowly. With the people, I don't think there's a lot of trust because there's so much that is undone. The Navajo were not the only people affected by these decisions. There were lots of other moments when the government chose not to convey important information to the general public. Like in the 1940s, when they injected 18 unknowing civilians with radioactive materials like plutonium. Or in the 1950s, when more than 100 boys at a school in Massachusetts were fed radioactive oatmeal. And then there was the post-war testing of atomic bombs. History professor Natasha Zaretsky. So there were two major sites for post-war atomic weapons testing. One was the Nevada test site out in the U.S. Southwest. The other was the Pacific Atolls, um, you know, focused especially on the Marshall Islands. These tests took place during the 1950s and 1960s. The wind would carry radioactive material from the test sites hundreds of miles. And the people living downwind received various levels of exposure. But by the 1970s, it had become increasingly clear that in some of these downwind areas, people had been exposed to the kind of radioactivity that caused cancer. And you have downwinders and other radiation sufferers who are coming forward and saying, you know, we were told that this would be safe. We were told that these uh, these tests pose no danger. And in fact, um, these tests obviously posed a serious threat to, to our health. And a lot of these people, too, specifically link the sense of betrayal they feel by the government, that the government has lied to them. As the American public learned more about the risks and dangers that had been kept hidden from them, as they learned about uranium mining on Native American land and nuclear testing in the Southwest deserts, they began to look at nuclear energy with more jaundiced eyes. And one of the biggest concerns that began to emerge was related to health. While the government had been open about how the technology worked, explaining the inner workings of reactors, and even sharing many of the details about what happened at SL1, there was perhaps less transparency about the health implications. There was no cover-up, but there was a definite downplaying of you know, the amount of radiation contamination that had, that had escaped. The official press releases were like, nothing to worry about, but the first responders absorbed enormous amounts of radiation, the firefighters that were the first on scene. So yeah, there were definitely health consequences, um, and the cleanup effort was just biblically huge. Undoubtedly, part of the reason for downplaying it was because they didn't have answers themselves. The atomic age was only about 15 years old, and we still hadn't wrapped our brains around all of the science. In fact, it was so new that like one example of that is like the ambulance that was used to ferry away two of the dead bodies was so highly irradiated from the work it did that the sensible thing to do would have been just to bury it, which is what they did with a lot of the other debris. But the army wanted to use that because they had so few chances to like use their decontamination procedures. So they used that ambulance to like practice how to decontaminate things. But in 1961, we didn't know the long-term effects of radiation exposure yet. What could be cleaned up? What could be dangerous? What needed to be locked away? However, rather than saying, hey, we don't know, and taking extra precautions, the Atomic Energy Commission preferred to reassure people that things were fine, just fine. After all, if you're the authority, you don't necessarily want to admit that you don't understand this stuff completely. Throughout the 50s and 60s, at and some of these questions still re remain today, There's a, there are a lot of unknowns about the health stuff. 
And they were very unwilling to show that hand because, you know, they're a powerful organization with a huge budget line. They have this burden of keeping the nation safe in this do or die Cold War. It would have put the AEC in this posture of vulnerability and potentially untrustworthiness beyond the criticisms it was already receiving. Um, And so I can't I can't even fathom a scenario where anyone at the AEC would be interested in saying, well, we were not sure. Or that the science on it isn't yet settled, which, interestingly enough, is still the case. The debate about radioactivity, health, and exposure persists to this day. On the next episode of Wild Thing, radiation and you. Enjoying Wild Thing? Want more? Premium subscribers get each episode early and exclusive access to all bonus episodes, not to mention the warm, fuzzy feeling that comes from supporting the show. For more information, go to wildthingpodcast.com. That's wildthingpodcast, all one word. You'll also find more about this season, including how to get Wild Thing t-shirts and stickers. Also, please consider leaving us a review wherever you get your podcasts and definitely tell your friends. All of this really helps get the word out about the show and makes future seasons more likely. And don't forget we're on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, look for at WildThingPod. This podcast is a production of Foxtopus Inc. with generous support from First Light Capital. Wild Thing is edited by Alicia Lincoln with sound mixing and music from Louis Weeks. Our executive producer is Scott Carney, and I'm your host and creator, Laura Krantz.